Senate will return Monday and is scheduled to stay through Thursday. The House has gone out of session but is in limbo. It has delayed the beginning of the August recess, but there's no word as of right now on when the House will be back in session. So the last two weeks on the House floor. Two weeks ago, the House came back to work on Monday, July 20th. First, the House passed the rule governing consideration of H.R. 6395, the William M. Mack Thornberry National Defense Authorization Act for 2021. Then the House began considering amendments to the bill. On Monday, the House considered and passed three amendments. On Tuesday, the House considered another seven amendments, of which four were adopted. Then the House voted by 295 to 125 to pass the bill as amended. On Wednesday, July 22nd, the House considered the Representative Chu House Amendment to Senate Amendment to H.R. 2486, the No Ban Act, and the Representative Jayapal House Amendment to Senate Amendment to H.R. 2486, the Access to Counsel Act of 2020. Both passed. Then the House passed H.R. 1957, the Great American Outdoors Act, by a vote of 310 to 107. Then the House considered H.R. 7573 under suspension of the rules. That bill, which mandated the removal of the bust of former Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Brooke Taney and its replacement with a bust of former Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, along with the removal of several other statues of Confederate leaders, passed by a vote of 305 to 113. On Thursday, July 23rd, the House passed the rule governing consideration of H.R. 7608, the State Foreign Operations, Agriculture, Rural Development, Interior, Environment, Military Construction, and Veterans Affairs Appropriations Act, also known as the first minibus of the 2021 appropriation cycle. Then the House took up amendments to the bill through the rest of Thursday and into Friday, July 24th. Later that afternoon, the bill was amended, passed by a vote of 224 to 189, and then they were done for the week. The House returned to work on Monday, July 27. The House passed a bill under suspension, and then they broke until Wednesday afternoon to honor the late Congressman John Lewis. On Wednesday afternoon, the House began consideration of the rule governing consideration of H.R. 7617, the Defense Appropriations Bill for fiscal year 2021. Then the House considered and passed H.R. 7027, an Emergency Supplemental Appropriations Bill. Then the House passed H.R. 7327, the Child Care for Economic Recovery Act, by a vote of 250 to 161. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 7617, the Defense Appropriations Bill for 2021. The House considered four amendments and adopted two of them. On Friday, the House considered one more amendment to the bill, then considered the GOP motion to recommit, and then considered and passed the bill as amended by a vote of 217 to 197. And then they were done. This week on the House floor, as I said, the House is out of session. It is expected that the House will meet during the month of August. Members have been told they will be given at least 24 hours notice before the House will be called back into session. Last two weeks on the Senate floor. The Senate also came back to work on Monday, July 20. First up was a vote to confirm Russ Vote to serve as Director of the Office of Management and Budget. He was confirmed by a vote of 51 to 45. On Tuesday, July 21, the Senate began consideration of S-4049, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2021. This is the Senate's version of the bill. The Senate spent the next three days on the bill and finally passed it on Thursday, July 23rd, by a vote of 86 to 14. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of William Scott Hardy to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Pennsylvania, and then the Senate broke for the weekend. The Senate returned on Monday, July 27, and voted to confirm the nomination of William Scott Hardy to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Pennsylvania. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of David Cleveland Joseph to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Louisiana and the nomination of Dana T. Wade to be an Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. 
On, on Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Marvin Kaplan to be a member of the National Labor Relations Board and the nomination of Lauren McGarrity McFerrin also to be a member of the National Labor Relations Board. The Senate also voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Derek Kahn to be Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm the nomination of Derek Kahn to serve as Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget. And finally, on Thursday, the Senate voted by 47 to 42 to pass the motion to proceed to the House message to accompany S-178, a bill to condemn gross human rights violations of ethnic Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang and calling for an end to arbitrary detention, torture, and harassment of these communities inside and outside of China. And then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, they'll return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Mark Wesley Menezes to be Deputy Secretary of Energy. Now, uh, a couple of items of note on the erasing history front. On Tuesday, July 21, the House passed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. That bill was amended in committee markup to include a provision requiring the renaming of military bases that are named after Confederate leaders. President Trump has threatened to veto the bill if it reaches his desk with that language included. On Thursday, July 23rd, the Senate passed its, I'm sorry, July 24th, the Senate passed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. The Senate version of the bill also includes language added in committee to require the renaming of military bases named after Confederate leaders. Now the two bills will likely go to a conference committee and congressional leaders in both chambers will decide if they want to risk a threatened veto by keeping that language in the final conference report. I'm betting they will because they believe President Trump will not actually veto the bill. Coincidentally, on the same day the Senate passed its version of the NDAA, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas introduced legislation that would block federal funding for schools that include curriculum from the New York Times 1619 project. Said Cotton in introducing his bill, quote, the New York Times 1619 project is a racially divisive revisionist account of history that denies the noble principles of freedom and equality on which our nation was founded. Not a single cent of federal funding should go to indoctrinate young Americans with this left-wing garbage, end quote. On the immigration slash border security front, in another win for the Trump administration on the legal front, on Friday, July 31st, two days ago, the Supreme Court issued a ruling declining to prohibit the Trump administration from using $2.5 billion in funds originally allocated to the Pentagon to build a border wall on our southern border. In doing so, the Supreme Court overturned an appeals court ruling from just last month that denied the administration permission to reallocate the funds. Now, more on investigating the investigators. On Saturday, July 25, the New York Times published a report naming former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele's so-called primary subsource for the dossier he compiled on then-candidate Donald Trump and his alleged activities in and with Russia. The man's name is Igor Danchenko. The FBI interviewed him early in 2017, and he agreed to tell investigators what he knew about the compiling of the Steele dossier on one important condition, that they keep his name out of it. Danchenko, it turns out, is a professional expert in Russian politics. As the Times piece put it, quote, Mr. Danchenko's identity is noteworthy 
because it further calls into question the credibility of the dossier. And remember, this is the New York Times, I'm quoting. By turning to Mr. Danchenko as his primary source to gather possible dirt on Mr. Trump involving Russia, Mr. Steele was relying not on someone with a history of working with Russian intelligence operatives or bringing to light their covert activities, but instead a researcher focused on analyzing business and political risks in Russia, end quote. FBI agents apparently interviewed this man before the May firing of FBI Director James Comey and the consequent appointment of Robert Mueller as special counsel. So even before Mueller took over the investigation, the FBI knew the Steele dossier was junk because it had heard so directly from one of Steele's principal sources who told them it was junk. Yet the FBI continued to use the Steele dossier to renew its FISA warrant applications to surveil former Trump campaign volunteer Carter Page. Now to reapportionment without counting illegal immigrants. On Tuesday, July 21, President Trump signed an executive order directing the U.S. Census Bureau not to count illegal immigrants when calculating the reapportionment of congressional districts in the House of Representatives based on state populations. Democrats and the media predictably went nuts. Quote, the House of Representatives will vigorously contest the president's unconstitutional and unlawful attempt to impair the census, end quote, said Speaker Pelosi in a statement responding to the announcement. The Constitution speaks to this. In Article 1, Section 2, the text reads, quote, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons, end quote. Later, the 14th Amendment updated this, removing the language about three-fifths of all other persons. That was the Constitution's code for slaves. And the text reads, quote, representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed, end quote. You may recall that back in 2018, Alabama Republican Congressman Mo Brooks and the state of Alabama filed a lawsuit against Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and the Department of Commerce and the Bureau of the Census, contending that it was wrong of the Census Bureau to include illegal immigrants in its decennial count of the population because they were not properly considered persons, as the term was understood at the time the Constitution and the 14th Amendment were adopted. That lawsuit is still pending in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Alabama. And in fact, the judge overseeing the case just ordered the parties to the case to prepare briefs discussing how the president's order affects their arguments. Those briefs are due tomorrow. This is a crucial effort. Under the current practice, which counts all individuals, including illegal immigrants, states are actually incentivized to act as magnets for illegal immigrants. The more people live in a state, the more congressional districts, and therefore electoral college votes it gets, and the more federal grant money it gets. States that act to reject illegal immigrants, on the other hand, are actually penalized. They are left with fewer congressional districts, and therefore electoral college votes, and less federal grant money. A study released last week by the Pew Research Center calculates just how much of an impact those extra people mean to some states. The report says that, quote, if unauthorized immigrants 
that is illegal immigrants, were excluded from the reapportionment count, California, Florida, and Texas would end up with one less congressional seat than they would have been awarded based on population change alone. California would lose two seats instead of losing one. Florida would gain one seat instead of two. And Texas would gain two seats instead of three, according to analysis based on projections of the Census Bureau 2019 population estimates and the center's estimates of the unauthorized immigrant population, end quote. Meanwhile, Alabama, Minnesota, and Ohio would each be allowed to keep a congressional seat. They will instead lose because they don't have enough people living there. Now to coronavirus relief. I've been telling you for weeks that the negotiation over the fifth coronavirus relief bill was going to be contentious, and the last two weeks have proven that true. There are different motives and different interests and different priorities at play here, and it's making these negotiations some of the most difficult we've seen on the Hill in quite some time. For starters, there are not two sides to the negotiation as there usually are. Usually, it's Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. When Barack Obama was president, he had to spend six years being opposed by a Republican-controlled House and two years being opposed, being opposed by a Republican-controlled Senate, too. But no matter what the circumstances were, he sided with his Democrat colleagues on the Hill, and they opposed the Republicans on the Hill, and there were only two sides to those negotiations. The Trump White House, for whatever reason, is not approaching these negotiations as if it's got backup from the Republicans who control the Senate. In fact, for most of the last week of the negotiations, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was not even in the room with the lead negotiators for the other two teams. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer for the Democrats, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin for the Trump administration. That might be all right if Meadows and Mnuchin knew they had McConnell's proxy in their back pocket, but they don't. And late in the week, they threw him under the bus, if news reports are accurate. At issue is McConnell's demand that the bill contain liability protection for businesses, schools, hospitals, and the like. He fears that in the absence of such new protections, we'll be looking at a virtual tsunami of trial lawyer action that will be so threatening that business owners and others will simply decide not to take any chances and will remain shut down. For the last several months, McConnell has been telling anyone who will listen that adding such liability protection is his must-have for the legislation. Absent a provision including such liability protection, he has said he will not schedule the bill for floor action in the Senate. The White House and Democratic leaders received that message months ago, and the White House said weeks ago that adding such liability protections was a priority for the bill. But then on Friday, the Washington Post reported that, quote, the White House is willing to cut a deal with Democrats that leaves out Senate Republican legislation aimed at protecting employers, hospitals, and schools from coronavirus-related lawsuits, according to two people with knowledge of internal White House planning. The White House wants and is pushing for the liability shield as a top priority, but would be willing to sign off on a deal that lacks the legal protections, those people said. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell controls the Senate floor and could shoot down any deal that leaves out what he has said is a necessary component of any stimulus package. One of the people familiar with the administration's thinking said the measure, quote, was considered important, but not absolutely essential, end quote, end quote. Sounds like trouble. But there's a catch. Even a careful reading of the Post piece does not indicate whether the White House is leaking to the Post that it's giving up on liability protection or possibly 
merely talking about giving up the fight to include liability protection in the context of a much smaller bill, which merely extends the $600 a week unemployment insurance super stipend that expired on Friday. Let's back up. The negotiations didn't really begin until early last week because Senate Republicans in the White House couldn't get their act together and get on the same page. When Meadows and Mnuchin first sat down with Pelosi and Schumer, they were so far apart, they couldn't do anything but leave the meeting and go whine about each other to the media. It took them a few days to even really get their sea legs in the negotiations. Now, keep in mind they were and still are negotiating under the pressure of a ticking clock because at midnight on Friday, July 31, two nights ago, two very significant provisions of law expired. The first is the $600 a week unemployment insurance super stipend. The second is protection against eviction for millions of Americans who have had financial difficulties during the pandemic and the accompanying economic downturn. Neither side wanted to be vulnerable to being blamed by the other for the expiration of either of those two provisions. And both wanted very much to wrap up a deal in time to keep those benefits in place without any interruption. As Friday neared, and it became clear the two sides were too far apart on the major issues to be able to reach a comprehensive deal before the benefits expired, the White House negotiating team offered major concessions. They offered to extend the benefits in their current form for a week, and they offered to extend the benefits for four months. Now, remember, this is a benefit that most Senate Republicans don't believe the U.S. government should be offering in the first place, because they believe the benefit acts as a disincentive for some workers to go back to work. So they were opposed to extending the benefits anyway. But the White House, operating separately, doesn't so much want to see the benefits extended as it fears being stuck with the blame if the benefits are not extended. So a bout of weak knee-itis hit Mnuchin and Meadows late in the week. But it was to no avail anyway. The Democrats believe that if they agree to solve the unemployment insurance problem in a separate bill, a narrow bill, then they will lose leverage over the conduct of the negotiations over the rest of the subject matter. So they've made clear to Mnuchin and Meadows that they are not interested in what they call piecemeal legislation. Meadows and Mnuchin and Pelosi and Schumer met yesterday for three hours, and both sides emerged with smiles on their faces and talked for the first time of progress being made. Senior staff met again today, and the principals are scheduled to meet again tomorrow. But they are still very far apart on some very fundamental issues, and I would not be at all surprised to see this negotiation take longer than a week to produce results. And that's our Washington report for this week.